Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined a very special guest, longtime friend of mine and friend of the firm, Gigi Levy-Weiss. Uh, Gigi is a co-founder and uh, managing partner at NFX. Gigi, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Uh, all the way from from Israel. All the way from Israel. Great to have you. Gigi, uh, before starting NFX, uh, you were founder. Uh, one of the companies which you started and sold, Playtika, uh, is a gaming company. It sold for $4.4 billion. I, I want to start with games. Uh, you also recently wrote a post about why VCs should be excited about games. Well, why don't you zoom out for a second uh, and say, hey, you've been working in games, you're starting companies, investing for the last couple decades. Most VCs have been somewhat negative on, on gaming recently. Why don't you give sort of a, a little bit of historical overview if you were to sort of classify the different eras of, of gaming companies or waves of, of VC excitement in gaming. Give us a little bit of historical overview and then let's talk about where we are right now in sort of sure. game. So I think that in, in reality... Um VCs are, we're always cautious about games for good reasons. And that ties into the history of games. So when you think about uh, games, if we go back to the beginning of video games, you know, when I, when we were kids, well, yeah. I was a kid, you were not <laughs> born yet. Games used to be packaged goods. Yeah. So you had a bunch of people working on a game and then they put it inside a, a box and they put it on shelves. And if it did well, then they continued selling it. If it didn't, they didn't. But you couldn't change anything. The code was not changeable. You could, you could just start working on the next game. And so bizarrely enough, you had like 200 people work on a game. And then once it went to the stores, everybody went to the next project, the package goods. Then came the internet. And with it came uh, a new world where you can start changing the game uh, going along. And so basically you had 20 levels. But if the game went well, you can then deliver another level and another level and another character. Uh, and this basically turned from games as packaged goods to what we call games as a service, because the game just continued evolving and evolving and evolving. And that needed, that required really kind of new skills. But at the end of the day, the way it looks is that you had a 200 person team work on a game, and then they kept like, say, 10% of the people or 20% of the people to continue kind of injecting value into the game. Then came the next iteration afterward, which is where you started understanding that by doing this, uh, you can actually get people to come back again and again and play the game more and more and more. And that two parts of it, one of it was basically based on the emergence of in-app purchases. So basically, as you said, if I bring more content, they're actually going to spend more money. And so it's worth my while to invest a lot more than it than just to make it worthwhile. And the second thing is that something was born that's called Live Ops. And Live Ops is basically saying, well, if I've got a game, then on top of this game, I can start doing events. And these events are going to be kind of interesting things that are going to come up again and again. So I've got a competition on Saturday. I've got a new mission on Sunday. And the more of these that I do, uh, the more uh, interesting the game is, the more people will spend money on. And so the games became kind of very live thing that continues evolving. And on top of it, a layer of management of things. The next thing that happened is what's called game as a platform, where suddenly when you're looking at the games that have millions of users, you see that every game used to have what's called the core game, which is like the, the basic thing you're playing. But then on top of it, there's metagame. Metagame could be the, the map in Candy Crush, or metagame can be a competition that you have, or a metagame can have clans that fight against each other. And what happened is that many of the game's companies understood suddenly that uh, you've got uh, this captive audience of millions of people, and you can start adding more layers of metagames on top of it, more layers of loops that get people back in, 
even if they're not good for everyone. So you've got, you've got a game that is basically a cards game, but then there's a, a virtual uh, pet collection game on top of it. Not good for everybody, maybe, but maybe 20% love it. And then you've got collection cards, and then you've got a bunch of other things. And each one of these things basically take the game as an entertainment platform rather than the specific core game. Now, if we now zoom out for a second, when games were packaged goods, they were very much like movies. In other words, when you invested in a game, you had to think, do I have the best director? Do I have the best art people? Do I have the best storyteller? Do I have the best of everything? Because if I don't, it's not going to succeed. That made games the same kind of investment area like investing in movies, which is basically not a very much a VC thing because I, how can I bet if something's going to work or not? What happened then is that as these things change, games became a very different thing. And not all VCs understand that. So when you look at game companies today, you basically see that there are, uh, in general, two very different type of games companies. We have one type of game company that still work on the core principle that if you build a great game, they will come. And that is some of the AAA games are like that. And maybe in the mobile world, the, the company that's the most like that is Supercell. Mm-hmm. Supercell, which is amazing, probably the best game company out there. They're just building amazing games. And as they build the amazing games, everybody's happy. Everybody's playing them. More, more people come. And, and they, just, they don't do a lot of the optimization that many of the other companies do. That's one type. The second type of company, which was basically born uh, on top of the mobile uh, infrastructure in the app stores, uh, and before that on top of Facebook, yeah. is a very different game company. These are games companies that are all about optimization. They're all about methodology. They're Zynga. all about... Yeah, Zynga was the first one of those, maybe. It's all about fast iteration. It's all about saying, we don't know what people are going to like. We have some guesses. We don't know, but we're going to improve that. And then these companies are based on very deep data sciences. The sciences, they're based on a lot of iteration, a lot of optimization. They're based on taking nothing for granted and testing everything. And they're based on a constant struggle to continuously optimize and make the game better to get to the following equation. Well, in the, in this in-app purchase world, it's a, an equation of CAC, the, how much it costs you to bring a customer to the LTV of the customer. And so if you can now increase the LTV, then you can now spend more money on the CAC. If you can spend more money on the CAC, you bring in more customers. You bring more customers, you make more money, you can improve the game even more, and so on. And that creates an advantage that is, over time, very difficult to compete against. Yeah. And so these kind of companies, where the first mobile one like that was really Playtica, the, the company that we, that we founded, are companies where it's not that the core game was not good. It's not that there were not great game people in the company. There were amazing game people in the company. But what differentiated this company from many other companies that, that grew up at the same time was that that was company was obsessed with data, obsessed with iterations, obsessed with optimization all the time. And now, if I now turn back and look at myself as a VC, I think that investing, even for me, investing at these creative-led game companies is very difficult. Because at the end of the day, I need to make the same bet that I would make on a movie. But when I see one of these data-driven games companies, that's an easy one. Because I can look how good they are. I can see how they've optimized games before. And so that is a totally different class. And so we call them games together, but are actually very very different companies. And so for me, it's very easy to invest in the data-driven ones. The ones that are basically a process of continuous uh, improvement and customer acquisition and improving the CAC to LTV equation, which is something that I, you know, that I know how to do. And I know that when you do it right, you can grow the company exponentially. And it's very difficult still, even for me, to invest in the ones that are creative-led. Right. And so you've had a number, you know, maybe a dozen or so exits in the space and some, some really big ones. 
talk about the, the range of the different types of companies you've invested is basically sort of play Tico or, or Zynga for X and that you just keep finding different niches and there, there can be many winners of, of companies that are doing similar things. Are you ma- you know, making games in, or- in, in the game, in the games world? Yeah. My, all of my investments are in that type of companies. Yeah. Now, some of them, they were in different genres and some of them were more creative led than others. But the, I think that if I, you know, if I look myself in the mirror, I, I'd love to say that I can choose the best, uh, the best creative people and I yeah. just know what stories are going to work. Yeah. But the reality is that the common denominator of all the companies that I invested in uh, that succeeded is that all of them had that really good infrastructure of looking at data, improving it and iterating. And it doesn't matter what was the game. It doesn't matter right. if it was an RPG or a strategy game or a slot machine uh, simulated game. Yeah. All of them at the end of the day had the same drive toward optimization, the same focus on data, the same understanding of games as, as a service, of live ops and games as, as a platform. Uh, and all of them basically, while they're very different, all of them basically exercise very similar principles. Right. And so then the business of making games as opposed to like infrastructure or, or are there other types of companies that you'd be interested uh, and not just, I mean, specifically in like making games businesses? So I, I think that when you look at the industry, it's like $150 billion industry a year, more or less. And uh, what you would expect that you'd expect to see a lot of successful platforms where people are using things because yeah. there's a lot of commonality. The reality is that that didn't really work that well in this industry. I have a bunch of theories why, uh, yeah, but the reality is that other than the core graphic engines, kind of Unity and Unreal, and the distribution, the app stores, everything in between, we really don't see any emerging platform that that helps people create games much faster, much better. Where there has been a lot of uh, uh, platform service for games uh, attempts over the years, and the reality is that while there is commonality, uh, that doesn't really save that much uh, time for the companies. And so, yeah, there's lots of services that people use, like AppFlyer or, yeah. you know, marketing automation or a bunch of other things. But on the core capability of building a game, we see the companies just build their own things. Right. And, and what, maybe one of the reasons is that other than the graphic engines, the reality is that every uh, company that grows eventually would like to move to their own platform. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the, the dream in a game company is that, that, very fast. You're going to have your own platform that's going to have all your capabilities the way you like them. And so even the companies that start on somebody else's platform, once they become successful, the first project is when do we move to our own platform? And this is why it's been very difficult. And and the reason is that the really successful games end up being so cash generative, so fast, that there's just no reason to keep paying somebody else for their platform. And there's no monopolies in game, like uh, in social, for example, you wouldn't try to compete with Facebook because like, hey, they have all the data, they have all the people, you're not going to go elsewhere. But people see Zynga and saw Zynga and they were like, hey, we can make better games or we can compete. Or So the first thing is that being that this is entertainment, I think that by design, there's not really one winner take it all because there's different tastes. I mean, yeah. in, uh, in Plarium, we've had this amazing thing where we had a run of on tra- strategy games where uh, on Facebook initially. We've had a first game that was called Total Domination that made millions, and we loved it, and it was great. But we figured out that we couldn't convert all customers. We didn't know why. Even customers that liked strategy games, not all of them converted. And so at a certain point, the founding team said, you know what, why don't we try and build the same game, but with a different theme? Yeah. And like some of the people said, it's got to be stupid. I mean, if it's the same game, why would people play that one and not that one? I mean, this is this is Space Wars, and this is... Pirates, it's the same game. And the reality was that by launching Pirates, uh, there was a whole new population that started playing the game mm-hmm. because they didn't like space. They didn't like uh, space wars. It looked to them stupid and irrelevant, and they loved Pirates. And then we did an historic one. 
And then we did uh, another one and another one. We did five of them where basically they were all in the same code base. So basically the same game. And horribly enough, I mean, horribly if you think about it like that, uh, some of the players played a few of those in parallel. Mm -hmm. You're like, but you know it's the same game. You know, you see the same feature. We roll out the same features to all three games. And you're still building your village here and your space town here and your spaceship here. And you're, why? And the answer is that people get connected to the theme. And so... Because of that, it's quite clear that there's going to be uh, multiple winners on that. That's yeah. one thing. Uh, the second thing is that you know game companies do have network effects in them, uh, especially the ones that you play with other people and their clans, and the, or you compete against others, or like a Fortnite, or so there is network effect. But the network effects are not incredibly strong, and so which means that even if you're very successful, you're not going to block others by having your network effect. And so there's always a chance for somebody else to come in. And so on the one hand, this is an industry where uh, you can grow incredibly fast, probably faster than any other industry. Wow. Uh, one of my companies called Moon Active, I think, you know, grew in one year something like 10,000%. Like, uh, unbelievable fast, like uh, crazy growth uh, of revenues and profit and everything. Um, no other industry you can grow like that. On the other hand, it's not as defensible. Now, it is defensible more than people tend to think because when you look at the successful games, their longevity is, is kind of five, six years, which is a lot more than what people would expect. I mean, like, you know, you install an app and tomorrow you install another app. But the reality is that the successful games have crazy longevity. And the reason is because you continue delivering content, you continue delivering new missions, you continue doing live ops, you continue providing new game layers on top of it. But the outcome is that these games have very, very high longevity. Yeah. And so while there isn't really any monopolies, the combination of knowing the trick of optimization and data science in this field and getting the talent, having the capacity financially and uh, knowledge of how to acquire the customers, and then being able to build these games has caused the, the, the reality where if you look at the top 25 games, it's more or less the same companies there for a few years now. Wow. Now, there's always new entrants. Uh, and when you look at the top 100, there's a lot of changes. Yeah. But at top 10, the changes are much smaller. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that's just that because these games, the, the mega games, are just, uh, you know, people continue playing them for years. Totally. It was interesting when, when Pokemon Go became popular, just the, the, the popularity of, and even if it was made by a different company, the popularity of that brand applied to, a, you know, Mario, oh, sorry, Pokemon, <laughs> applied to a different uh, platform and just how, how lasting that, that brand is. Uh, that, that was the, this game in, in many people's eyes is still an anomaly. Yeah. You know, people call it an AR game, but it's not really AR, right? It's just overlay over camera. Yeah. And the Pokemon, while a big thing in Japan, was not really a, a big thing around the world that big. I mean, yeah. you know, I, we knew about it, but. Right. Um, and it's one of these cases where you come up with a new form of entertainment and you have no idea whether it's going to work or not, but yeah. it just kind of works, totally. you know, and the, it. Pink, some, it's like a, a pleasure center in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> and this new pleasure center is around catching these creatures and having to run in the street to catch them. <laughs> Nobody was able to replicate that yet. And even their second game is yeah. not successful, hmm. uh, you know, with, with a better IP, right? Harry yeah. Potter is a better wow. IP. Uh, but I think the novelty of running in the street and catching things kind of went away. And so, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> that's the risk of these things. <laughs> totally. So in uh, in 2020, I'm, I'm curious, what is your sort of re- request for startups in gaming? I'm curious if there are startups beyond the types of companies that you mentioned in terms of data-driven game, uh, companies that make games, i.e. I see you know pitches around companies that 
uh, try to make platforms to discover games or train esports players or esports teams or uh, lots of sort of the surrounding ecosystem. Are you excited anywhere else? So I think that what I'm looking for, the first thing is, is phenomenal teams doing the same kind of games. And, you know, that's been working for us. We've invested a bunch in the first, uh, in the first fund and it's going great and we're doing a few more investments now. The second thing are, are new monetization or consumption models. So for example, we are, there's a company in our portfolio now that is basically taking games and allowing people uh, to play skill games for money in a legal manner. Mm. And this, uh, they're, they're doing it in a very different format than what anybody else ever did it. It's growing kind of, you know, very, very fast. And the reason we like it is because it's taking the same principles, the same, the, the same understanding of how to build an exciting game and how to retain the customers and so on. But it's giving people another layer of excitement, which is around the real money. Now, most people play there for half a dollar. Yeah. Or something like that, but still, the, the the excitement makes it really different. So, different models of engagement or monetization is one thing. The next thing we're excited about is uh, is new platform. Now we're very cautious about that, you know, VR, AR, and so on. But uh, uh, we did invest in a company called uh, Volley that is the leader in uh, in voice yeah. uh, based uh, games. They're like they have millions of people playing every day their games wow. uh, on Alexa and Google Voice uh, and a bunch of other platforms. And again, we don't know yet whether how large this is going to be, but it's growing very fast, and uh, and they are the leader in the market. And you know, as as all these powers to be are pushing voice, uh, it is very likely that this is going to be a, g- a good games platform. Totally. Um, so that's that. And we are still with our, you know, we're, we're putting our finger on the pulse to on the AR and VR, yeah. waiting for the devices to be around so that we can invest totally. in that. And then when it comes to uh, when it comes to esports, I think that the uh, the sad reality of esports is that. You know, a few years in, when you look at it, uh, the people that really made all the money, all the excess money from esports compared to just having a game, are mostly the the game developer, the developer publishers, yeah. right? We did not see other than Twitch, uh, which is the broadcasting. Yeah. You know, we did not see basically anybody grow a huge company yeah. out of the ecosystem around it. And so we have looked around. We've we've invested in a company that I love because I love the team and I love what they do. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with when you play games. Uh, in many of them, you buy virtual goods, yeah, and these virtual goods are not necessarily things that help you play the game better, but they're vanity. Yeah. So like costumes and knives, and 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 so some of these things cost thousands of dollars, and all gamers want to play with them, but not everybody has the money. Yeah. What they did is that they basically put their hands on a huge inventory of these virtual goods, and they created a Netflix-like rent service where you pay uh, 19 bucks a month, and you can take as many goods as you want and use them <laughs> and return oh, yeah. them. Amazing. You have to return them. That, by the way, the, the most complex thing in this business is how do you make sure that people don't take them and not return them, <laughs> right? Because it's a virtual good, right? Yeah. You don't. It's very yeah. easy to take and not return. So yeah. that, that's been their expertise. They're amazing, amazing people. And the interesting thing is that we're seeing this kind of grow, you know, 20% month on month. But the, the beauty, they don't need to market. It's worth their yeah. mouse because people are so happy that they don't need to spend the 400 bucks on the knife. And they can play with one one knife today and another knife tomorrow, and they can sh- show up with something new every day. Yeah. And it's cool. And so that that's like a, you know, there's like an auxiliary service to right. this that we've done. But other than this, we've looked at hundreds of them. We haven't yet pulled the trigger. Yeah. It, before NFX, I've invested in a company called Overwolf, uh, that is basically building uh, the infrastructure on top of games to allow building services. So they're like. Uh, uh, they are connected to the APIs of all the games. And those that don't have APIs, they're just on top of the actual access uh, on the PC side. 
and they allow every developer to build applications on top of yeah. the game. So head up displays and recording and streaming and stuff like that. Yeah. And so that again, that's one that I did because I thought that the infrastructure is required, and they're making yeah. or, you know they're making a lot of money right now. But uh, I think that it it is kind of you know I'm not happy to say that, but it is probably um, right to say that esports is huge. But it's mostly benefiting the public, well, the customers, of course, but the publishers, developers uh, are the ones that are enjoying it more yeah. than anybody else in the ecosystem. Do you think the teams are good business, venture businesses? Well, is an NBA team a good business? I don't know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I don't know, which is why I'm not going to invest in one. Right. I think that teams, I, I, esports is here to stay. Yeah. I mean, you look at the viewership, but not just the viewership. You, you, I, I have uh, three kids and uh, the two younger ones that are now... Uh, kind of 11 and 9, if I take off their screen time limitations <laughs> then and I let them watch whatever they want, then probably the first thing they're going to watch on YouTube are movies of people playing Brawl Stars and other games. Wow. And I'm like, what are you watching? They're like, I'm learning new techniques, Daddy. You told me that, you know, I, I play tennis. I want to watch a Federer and Nadal play. And I play Brawl Stars. I want to <laughs> watch the top players play. Yeah. And so they really think like that. And they really look at it. And for them, like, watching a game, they're like, look, look at that. Look what he's done. Look, he's holding this legendary rifle. And so they really love that. And so eSports is here to stay. Yeah. And um, as it's here to stay, uh, it will be a growing part of the gaming ecosystem, right? If you if you build a game today without thinking how it's going to look in esports, yeah. then you're basically selling yourself short, totally. right? And so that is really where the world is heading. And I'm sure there's going to be some other great businesses around it. I just haven't found them yeah. yet. Did Twitch uh, surprise you? I, you know, the the phenomenon that people would be watching other people play play video games, and it's it's one of the biggest. It's a big business in gaming. Did did something like it surprise you, or did you think that that, that would there. So look, I, I didn't see the company when it was fundraising. So I, you know, it, it's going to be kind of easy for me to say that it didn't surprise me now. But, uh, but you know, in a, in a way, what I what always resonated with Twitch. But so when I was a kid, I grew up in in video game parlors. I used to mm. play all the games. I used to actually, I used to, I used to code games as a kid. It was my first job. And, and what you would see is that when one of the good players was standing in the, in one of the parlors and playing, uh, you know, Street Fighter or something, what would you see? You'd see the other kids standing behind him and cheering. Yeah. And like, look at him. Look at what he's doing. I, yeah. I did. He does the super kick. I didn't know you could do the super kick when somebody attacks you from behind. Yeah. Right? What is this? That's exactly Twitch. Right? You've got the super player playing. You're playing the same game, so you feel really connected. Mm -hmm. And you really want to watch and see what they're doing because A, it's exciting. B, you're learning. And, and C, because it's where everybody is. Yeah. And so I think that that is the same phenomenon at scale, of course. Right. Um, and being that these games are more complex and larger and more interesting and so on, I really think that we'll continue seeing this grow rather than yeah, anything else. Totally. Let's say we're back here at 2030 uh, and talking about gaming. How, how do you think about the future uh, of gaming is, is it just going to be is it going to be sort of Ready Player One? We're all going to be in, in you know in in VR and um, or how, how are you thinking about the the future of gaming? Um, I sadly think the answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, look, VR is uh, VR is really that um, you know one of the best examples of the saying that that you know we overestimate the impact of technology in the short term yeah. and underestimate it in the long term, and I think that. Uh, it was kind of clear that VR is going to take more time. Yeah. You know, clunky devices, connectivity, you need 5G, you need, uh, you need a lot of edge compute to properly do it, uh, which does not yet exist properly today. You need graphic capabilities that were not there when the first devices were launched. Uh, you need head tracking in a much better way than you had before. Uh, you need it to be light because otherwise you're going to, you know, break your back or neck after a while. 
uh, of using it. And so there's all these things that you need for this to work, and it's a very complex experience. And so until it's above critical mass of greatness, people are just not going to use it. And we're not there yet. I mean, the uh, you know the latest Oculus is is getting there. It's it's the best device that's ever come out, and it's uh, probably the first one that is really consumer grade. Mm. And I think that the next one's going to be even better. And, you know, Facebook's driving that, um, you know, with, with amazing vision and power. I'm not sure if 10 years is the right thing, but, you know, 15 years from now, I, you know, I, I kind of fear that our new uh, epidemic is not going to be opiates. It's going to be, you know, sitting on VR couches, <laughs> thinking that you're the king in the virtual world, being fed uh, in, directly into the vein. <laughs> And not wanting to get out of there because real life sucks, yeah. right? And so, and you know, and, and I, I know gamers today yeah, yeah. that live the same way in League of Legends or in World of Warcraft, maybe yeah. in World of Warcraft more than League of Legends, and they do live their lives a little bit through the character that they have. But that's today 2D and small screen. What's going to happen when there's going to be 3D, uh, huge screen all around you? It's going to have give you biofeedback. Yeah. It's going to really be fun. Everybody's going to respect you there. Uh, Plus you know, with more unemployment in the real world with uh, uh, completely, AI. Completely. Yeah. You know, you're going to be the sexy dude or girl there. Everybody's going to like you. That's going to be tough to get out of, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to be then, uh, I don't know, I'm going to be close to 60. Maybe maybe I'll spend there a lot of time myself. <laughs> totally. Uh, I'll come. I'll come catch you. Come, so you mean come feed me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> come join you. So in, uh, I want to segue into, into crypto and, and one segue is that people have been excited a little bit, you know, uh, non-fungible tokens as it relates to gaming and, um, this idea that you could take your virtual goods across yeah. games. Is there anything within the intersection of crypto and gaming that's interesting? And then, and then let's tra transition into crypto proper. You've incubated a company in space. We're lucky to be a small supporter. Uh, I'm just curious how, um, your interests have evolved there and how you've thought yeah. about the space. Um, so I think that, you know, we're in this uh, very uh, interesting and not necessarily easy point in, in crypto or in blockchain in general. And, uh, you know, we've always looked uh, separately at uh, blockchain as a technology and what it can bring to the world, especially to the enterprise market, actually, and yeah. or especially between enterprises where you need zero trust between organizations and crypto, which is a totally different thing. And, and in the crypto world, I think what excited me more than anything else over the years was the the feeling that what utility tokens brought to the table was not a new form of payment or a new form of something. It was basically bringing in a new paradigm of business models hmm. that for the first time ever uh, took away the uh, friction between the different stakeholders. So I'll explain what I mean. If you are a ride-sharing company, a ride-hailing company, and you have customers and drivers and you have the company, there's basically a, a conflict of an inherent conflict of interest, right? The, the customers want to pay as, mu as little as possible. The drivers want to charge as much as possible. The company wants to rake as much as possible. Yeah. And in general, the company will probably continue raking as much as they can until they break the ecosystem. And so they're, they're always going to charge as much as they can until the point that the ecosystem almost breaks, right? And then clearly competition and so on. But that's, and so everybody hates everybody. The drivers hate the company, the company hates the customers and the drivers, and the customers hate paying that much. And so, and um, in a way, that's the capitalist world, and that's how it works, and life stuff. Yeah. Now, imagine a different world where uh, basically this is all decentralized. So first of all, there's no company, yeah. right? Or if there is a company, the only compensation the company is getting is not rake, but they own part of the tokens. And now the customers are paying, and this is all very theoretical, but the customers are paying the drivers now with these tokens. Now, 
What's happening is that the first thing is that everybody has two alignment of interests that never existed before. The first thing is that everybody, but literally everybody wants the, the lowest friction. Why? Because the only way this is going to get more meaningful is if the volume grows dramatically. And so for a limited number of tokens, you're going to get more volume, the price of the token is going to go up, which is the second thing everybody wants the price, the price of the token to go up. So if you're in the token, you're happy because the price of the trip is the same, but the token is worth more outside. And, so, and if you go out of the token, then you got more money for it. And so everybody's happy. And so right, while very far from perfect, and clearly I'm just simplifying very much, yeah. that was the big promise. And the, the big promise was not, you know, people tell me that the big promise was that uh, you don't need to pay processors for the payment. I mean, that's nothing at the end of the day, right? You know, you end up paying, uh, you know, Stripe, you know, 2.7% or something. That, that's a lot of money, but that's not what changes the business too much. It is the fact that there was a new type of business alignment, of stakeholders alignment that did not exist before that was exciting for me. And that basically um, got completely shut down by regulators. Now, for a good reason, for a bad reason, putting all of this aside, and in a way, I think the industry is a little bit to blame because there was very little self-regulation. And yeah. so, you know, when you go wild, then you get <laughs> shut down. But the reality is that uh, that is completely gone right now. And, and the models of trying to create mega companies on top of this do not exist. I'll also say as, uh, you know, as somebody that supported it and invested in a bunch of these companies, it's also kind of depressing that a few years into it now, we don't have any mega companies to show. That's just the reality. We don't have what's called a DAP, a decentralized application. Uh, Other than financial ones, we'll talk about that in a second, we don't really have anything big to show. You know, part of it is because of maybe the people that were attracted to it or Part of it was around the, the the swiftness of raising money, and you know, a lot of capital is not always a good thing. Yeah. But the reality is that, you know, with all the money that was invested in the billions, other than these tokens being, you know, things that people trade, uh, we didn't really see any major companies. So that that's one thing. And then I think that when it comes to what's called uh, uh, DeFi, the central financial products. That is a different world because as a financial product, these, uh, these currencies or tokens uh, have, you know, have interesting meaning. In these cases, many times the low transaction vol- uh, cost is important. And the fact that uh, you can do a bunch of things that you can't do with fiat money uh, is important. And these services today are working. Uh, they're working uh, mostly because there are people that are captive in, in crypto. They don't want to go out of crypto because if they go out, they need to pay the tax for it or they need to declare it or whatever. And even in this, I don't see that that much major companies right now. And so I think that here are the things that I'm sure about. The first thing is that uh, blockchain technology for infrastructure is a valid technology for very specific use cases. But it's just like saying that uh, I like NoSQL for specific applications. It is good for something, it's bad for other things. And that is that. That's one thing. The second thing is that I think that uh, that blockchain as a store of value and the transactional a transactional tool for let's call it the semi-grade things of the world that's going to stay. That's probably a multi-hundred billion dollar economy. And as you know, there's really no easy way to block that. And uh, I don't know whether it's making right now the world a better place on some of these transactions. But for many people, it is a great tool that's going to make that's making their life better. And clearly, especially as you go to the poorer countries, uh, this is allowing people to store uh, money, in, you know, in currency that is not dependent on the regime. 
and it allows people to not be undermined by the by, by the local powers yeah. to be, and so that that does make the world a better place. So that that's that. I don't think we're going to see um, any final, ex- you know, successful explosion of the, of decentralized apps. I think that DeFi is going to continue growing, uh, but I don't. Again, I don't see it exploding. I think it's gonna it's going to come and continue growing as the industry matures. And I think the one thing that I hope for more than anything else is I hope for the next wave of entrepreneurs entering it to not think about how do I build something that is decentralized for the sake of being decentralized, but ask the question, what business can I build where if it's decentralized, it's a better business, yeah. right? Which is not the way many of these businesses were built. I mean, many of these were built, okay, you know, if, if Uber is good, then a decentralized Uber is going to be better. Well, but there's already is Uber and it has kind of strong network effect. Yeah. And there are people already using it. And, you know, they paid billions for people to download the apps in marketing. And, you know, where, where is all of that going to come from? Yeah. And so just by making decentralized and theoretical, that's not going to make life better. And so what kinds of businesses do you think are better or e- either unlocked by decentralization or better because they're decentralized? Yeah. So, look, I, we've invested in a company, for example, that they, they take uh, uh, bills of lading and shipping mostly. And they uh, replace them with digital documents that are uh, basically stored on the blockchain. Yeah. And they don't really store the document. What they do is something interesting. They basically say that the document is like a PDF. That's fine. But the ownership of the document is stored on their blockchain. And so yeah. let's say that I now send you some goods. The way it works today is that I'm literally sending in, in parallel to the goods, to the, you know, to the whatever I'm sending you on, on the ship. I'm sending you usually over FedEx uh, the bill of lading. It's like a package of papers yeah. that you're getting. The reason you need them is because the people that have the original document are the owners of the goods. And so that these, th- this piece of paper is really the ownership of the goods. Now, imagine that we could do something else where we say the document is, is a scanned PDF or a generated PDF. But on the blockchain, it basically says who owns it. And so what happens is that when I, when I send you the document... The system now asks you, do you want to send the document or do you want us to change title? And if you say you want to change title, you need to basically punch in your code. And then what happens is that you get the document or the the next party gets the document. But right now, everybody that looks at this document knows who owns it and it knows that the title passed. And the reason why you need this to be over blockchain is because um, you need it to be not in anybody's hands. If it's in one company's hands, it's never going to work. So no single company is going to allow another company to own the or the to own the registrar of ownership yeah. of the goods that they're sending so it's on blockchain they already have uh, three of the top 10 shippers in the world uh, mm-hmm. using it it's integrated the way that it works that it's integrated into their systems so it's like a it's a no-brainer they don't need to think about it they don't need to change anything in their process just a new feature of the system uh, the people that work in these companies don't know it's blockchain. They don't yeah. care it's blockchain. It doesn't say blockchain anywhere. Right. But it, that's, that was the only way to convince these companies to use it. And so that's like an example of using blockchain technology in the enterprise world where you need a, a zero trust um, environment uh, without having to even mention it to anybody other than the people that chose the system that yeah. is based on blockchain, right? And, and we're seeing a bunch more of those. So that's, that's an area that interests me. There are a few ideas I, I found via the, the crypto community. I don't know if they necessarily need to be decentralized, but I'm curious if you have a, a take on any of them. There's three. One of them is fractionalization. So like real estate or of, um, you know, various different types of uh, car or art or. So, so we invested in a company called Landa, which, uh, you know, one of my favorite investments. It's, uh, it's one of the best teams that I work with. And what they're doing is that they have an app 
where you can connect your bank account and you can start buying uh, fractions of uh, rent-paying real estate cool. for as little as five bucks. Okay, this is based on, on proper regulation and it's as little as five bucks and it has no blockchain yeah. right now. What will happen if their servers collapse and their backup disappears and Amazon shuts them down and all the data is, yeah, there's going to be a problem. But the same thing applies for Bank of America, yeah. right? And so you really don't need blockchain for that. You yeah. really don't need, you can allow, you can allow for, for uh, uh, transactions even without blockchain. And actually, yeah. if you want to maintain the integrity of the marketplace, actually in this particular case, then keeping a central place where everybody can see the transaction rather than being able to do transactions in the back. Yeah. Uh, for example, that's something that is better for consumers. And so you really don't need tokens for fractionalization. Uh, yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't work. Right. doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. It doesn't mean that you can't tokenize things. I mean, um, clearly, like uh, home ownership at the, at the country level, much better if it's tokenized. Much better if it's transparent, right? And yeah. some countries have started doing this. But at the, many of the business ideas that they're running around are just not there. So, for example, if we take the idea of, uh, of blockchain in games, like where you, you, know, you can have the sword and it has a singular number, I don't think the consumers really care whether the singular number comes from the servers of the developer and they believe it's a singular number or, you know, or they're going to go and check the paper trail to find that it's on the blockchain and it really has a singular number. And people say, well, but if you don't have that, then the company may then immediately print in double brackets another 500 of these swords and sell all of them. Well, that, that is true. But if they really wanted to do that, they could do the same thing on the blockchain and kind of mask it and hide it. Yeah. And so I don't think the blockchain really adds a lot of transparency that is valuable for the end users in yeah. this particular case. And so if it's going to work better for you infrastructure-wise, if it's going to be faster and better, great, do it. Yeah. Uh, but it's not about... The consumer is needing this. Right. Yeah. Or certainly the mass consumer. A couple other ideas, blockchain or not, that I'm, I'm intrigued by. One is income share agreements. So the idea that, well, you know, Lambda School is, is one implementation. Another implementation is a me and my 10 friends from college want to share 1% of our future revenues. We can sort of pool together or I can invest in a basket of, you know, Michigan, University of Michigan students, uh, just creating, you know, more financial instruments via yeah. income sharing. The other one is uh, prediction markets. Uh, so, and maybe, Blockchain is useful for law, <laughs> you know, going around the law. But the the concept of if I put an opinion on Twitter or someone I see an opinion, I want to say, hey, put your money where your mouth is, you know, bet on it yeah. or speculate on it. Yeah. Um, if you discover a new artist or a new idea and you say, I think this is going to be big, ideally be a site where you can, you know, just like you said, oh, Bitcoin's going to be big. I can speculate on it. If it goes up, I could, sh I make money. And I also show that I was one of the first people to get excited about this idea. Really what I'm excited about because I'm always thinking about what people think are popular. I want to go to a website that says communism down 20% today or, you know, this new artist down 15% or like I want real-time sentiment analysis. So I think that um, these are two very different questions. So if we start with income sharing agreements, which is, you know, the, one of these amazing trends, especially in education where yeah. you suddenly create alignment between the university and yeah. the student, which is, you know, it is a financial instrument, but it also puts in a, a new level of alignment that I really yeah. like. I think that we will see this evolve dramatically in the coming few, you know, there's more regulation that favorable there's, that are coming in and there's more and more companies that are willing to provide the capital. There's more and more lenders that are willing to provide capital to this. More and more universities understand that this is a competitive tool that they need to start doing, uh, start uh, providing. And so I believe that there will not be a university not providing ISAs a while from now. Some of them are going to be new ones that, that are basically built around the ISAs. 
Um, and we're looking at some of those and some of them are going to be uh, traditional, you know, big brand schools or small brand schools that are going to add ISAs and they're all the companies that are going to serve these people and give them the software to underwrite it. It's a new financial tool. So that's going to come with everything around it. So that's one thing. You really don't need tokens for that in any way. The, the idea of a token for future income of people is actually something that I played around with quite a bit. And um, at a certain point, I was in discussion with one of the largest talent agencies in the world on basically allowing their talents to sell part of their future uh, income uh, on the platform. And we measured, for example, one of the top rappers in the world. And uh, we, we kind of thought that we can sell probably kind of 5% for a few hundred million dollars. And, you know, they went to the person. I'm not going to share the detail. They went to the person and asked him and said that he'll be happy to do that. And so we were looking to, to build a team around that. Um, that was like the best marketing tool in the world. And then the crypto winter hit us and we stopped it. But, but at a certain point, we were really sure that we're, right. go, that we're going to do that because uh, the idea that you can trade, uh, you know, somebody's big future revenue and you can trade it and it's great. Having said that, let's just face the reality. Even they didn't want this and he was really not willing for this to be traded everywhere. Yeah. And so even if, had it been a token, it would have been locked to their exchange. Because he didn't want this to be, have like a secondary market where people can short him or, you know, he wanted just, you know, very straightforward transactions where people can see exactly what's happening. It's traded only in one place. Uh, so that was that. And I still believe that's going to happen one day. By the way, this has got nothing to do with blockchain. This is just essentially a, a business model that I think for many years was, uh, you know, for many years we used to go to our best friends and say, I love you. You're so good. I, I'm willing to buy 10% of your future, right? I had a, you know, I had a, my, one of my friends, my, my parents' friends that used to say that I want to buy 10% of you. Always sounded like that he wanted to do something else. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that the school level ISA is going to educate the market. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm 100% sure that we're going to see more ISAs. Totally. Uh, than just school level ISAs. I think yeah. this is gonna that's gonna be a trend that's gonna go way beyond. And I think when I'm, when we're looking now, we're still looking at the university ecosystem, but we're actually more interested in thinking about where are, where else is it gonna pop up, totally. and how easy is it um, to basically track down the, the the commitments later and so on and so on. So totally. that's one thing. Then prediction markets are are a totally different game. If we take aside the point of prediction markets being sometimes called gambling. Yep. And that when you put them on the blockchain, it makes it easier to do them without getting the right license. Yeah. I'm putting this aside. That's yeah. not an, that's really not an incentive. Or is, but not for me. I think that there is one interesting thing in prediction markets, which is in prediction markets, you need to code rules. And these rules have got to be unchangeable and evolving uh, without you as the company being able to change them. Because if you change the rules, you're basically upsetting the people and that's unfair. And so... We did not invest in any prediction markets company, but we did invest in a company called DowStack. And DowStack basically is a software stack uh, for any organization that wants to create kind of governance rules uh, for any, any type of process. And so at the simplest level, a thousand people that want to pull in capital and invest in companies, DowStack would build for them the mechanism of voting that has in it also not just the voting and the rules on the voting, but also we have built into it in code, how do people's reputation change based on the results of their recommendation and how their vote in every topic uh, would basically vary over time if they were right or wrong, up to the point that a few years into it, the way this is coded could be that my vote on, I don't know, on, uh, on, on semiconductor investments is counted as zero. 
and you know somebody else's vote on this is counted 10x or whatever and this is all a live code that's implemented at the you know at the blockchain level and so for these prediction markets be them inside companies or outside companies be them for governance or for predictions i do believe that you require some interesting technology and i do believe that this is something that if you want to gain trust of the people that believe that the rules are not going to get changed uh, and so you know we don't if i pull my cap if i pull my capital i want to be able to audit the agreement yeah and i don't want to have to go and check that the agreement is basically being fulfilled and so the code does that for me i think that in such cases where we haven't yet seen you know massive cases but we're starting to see in such cases then a software stack on top of a blockchain is actually a great solution. Yeah. So to close out our, our crypto section, is do you have a request for startups or a place where you're interested to see more experimentation in crypto or where you're excited to invest uh, either now or in the future? I think that we're still interested in, in kind of enterprise or SMB use cases for, for blockchain as uh, infrastructure. And I think that if anybody has uh, a decentralized application, that is in line with current regulation that's, that's constantly changing, but has already some initial traction that I can look at that, that I'll be happy to look at. Cool. Uh, another place I want to transition to is uh, a place you've, you spent some time recently is, uh, is biotech. Um, why don't you sort of uh, trace your evolution into how you got excited about the space and how you've been looking at it from a, from yeah, a VC? So I think that for years now, uh, as I'm getting old, I started worrying more about um, about healthcare in general, and uh, I, I did a bunch of investments, you know, kind of sporadically as an angel before NFX, and they worked well. But you know, the ones that worked better were the ones that I understood more in, like uh, healthcare IT rather than drug discovery. The the ones that worked in the other areas were those where I followed smart people that understood the science. And for a while, I thought that this is it. I'm not going to do healthcare because it's really not my thing. And, you know, I can do software health for healthcare, but nothing more than this. And then uh, the synthetic or computation biology uh, revolution hit us and my mind changed completely. And the reason my mind changed completely is because uh, it suddenly occurred to me that we live in this very unique uh, age where, first of all, biology for the first time is becoming digital. So... Uh, because of sequencing, we can turn DNA data and other data into digital data. That's one thing. The second thing is that uh, for the first time ever, we have the computing power and, uh, and the deep learning capabilities uh, to make sense out of uh, everything that we've just digitized. And the third thing is that it's the first time in history where we can do things about it using uh, things like CRISPR or printing DNA like TWIST Bioscience. And so we can suddenly act on top of it. And that's really, really simplifying the, the principle. But for the listeners, it's like we can suddenly look at bio as digital data that we can run machine learning on. And when we find something, we can act on it. Yeah. And the meaning is that all the processes that, that are in drug discovery or in diagnostics and so on, they're not going to be the same as they were before. Because in a way, drug discovery is almost like uh, once somebody in one of the large pharma companies once explained it to me, as taking a, a dart, uh, stepping away a mile away from the from the target, and throwing it and hoping it's going to hit, mm. and then when it doesn't, you throw another one and another one, and so you know it's really that these are hundreds of millions of dollar lengthy processes, and suddenly today uh, we're we're getting to a day and age where it's going to be completely different. It's going to be completely different because it's going to be based on data and it's going to have very fast iteration, just like what we do in software, and it's going to use machine learning just like we use in software. Um, and it's going to use digital outputs just like we do in other places. And so 
It is true that there's going to be biology at the entry point, yeah. right? You need to find what DNA you want to sequence. You need to find whether you're looking at the virus or, and there's going to be biology at the end of it, right? So we discovered some things, either you're going to need to manufacture the drug or you're going to need to create the CRISPR agent that's going to do whatever you need. But everything in between suddenly became more like the companies I know. Yeah. And so for me, while I did not become an expert in the biology of the entry or the end of it, uh, it occurred to me that there are no biologists that are experts in the middle. Right. And so suddenly to create these companies, what you needed, you needed people that are biologists to do the beginning and the end and to have the first assumptions, maybe. But you also needed data people and software people that can build everything in the middle and optimize it. And, it, and I thought and, um, you know, James and I kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, we're probably as good positioned as anybody else to look at the middle part. And right now, we're not 100% sure what, what experience is easier to bring. Is it easier to bring biologists to help you understand the biology part, or is it easier to find the people that understand machine learning and everything else to do the middle part? And it's probably almost as difficult. Yeah. And so we started looking at the field. The first investment we did in the field was a company called the Genome Compiler, mm -hmm. which was basically a, a CAD tool for designing DNA that got acquired by Twist Bioscience, where we invested in Twist Bioscience that got to love this company and what they're doing and their mission. Then we've invested Mammoth. in Mammoth, which is one of my favorite companies yeah. of all time that is basically changing diagnostics and therapeutics now forever, yeah, uh, using CRISPR, doing really well. And, uh, you know, literally, they I think they came up with a coronavirus immediate wow. detection in like two days. It, uh, that's how strong their platform is. And then by the way, that ties it, you know, we have this network effect platform thesis in biology, which basically, you know, we can talk for hours on that. But the thesis is that if you have enough IP and enough technology and enough understanding what you're doing with the data, then you can suddenly create a platform which is very different than pharma companies in the past where you're using the platform to create your own products, but you're also licensing the, pro the, the platform out for other people to bring their IP and build products on top of it, yeah. where you're, they're paying you up front, but are also giving you a share of the, of the process afterwards. Um, and that platform approach basically makes uh, pharma companies a lot more like software companies in general. Yeah. And so we did Mammoth, we, did, uh, we seeded a, a kind of a computational biology seed fund in Silicon Valley in Israel called the TechBio. Cool. Uh, which is de delivering us, um, uh, you know, deal flow and understanding. And we'll continue to look at it. It is still early on in this field yeah. for computational biology. Um, it, there's still, you know, you go to the meeting, there's still like, you know, it's hundreds of people yeah. and it's tens of investors, right? right? It's like it's like venture was, you know, right. 30, 40 years ago in other fields and um, and we love it. Totally. Is it going full circle here? Is it sort of like gaming where you're excited about the companies that are using data uh, to optimize and instead of, you know, gaming studios or uh, gaming businesses, it's companies that are making drugs? Is that not the uh, analogy to make here in terms of where you're looking? No, I, I think you've, you've hit something right. I think that, you know, if, if you look at it, potentially you can now devise this world into two types of companies, the one that are just a deep bioscience and they want to do one thing and, you know, then the, the understanding of this is just like finding the right movie. You, you need to believe that their science is good, but you don't see the software scalability. You don't see the network effects. You don't see the defensibility. You don't see how uh, the machine learning and the data that you collect is going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and then the other ones are the ones where, um, you know, in theory, all the way to the extreme where... Uh, it doesn't even matter where they start with the original biology because what they're building is a platform. And even if the original biology is wrong, then the platform is going to work well on the second biology or the yeah. third biology. And we're clearly more on that side than, than the first side. 
uh, although it's a lot less uh, clear than it is in, in areas like games, it, it is a lot more complicated. Yeah. Uh, we're also, by the way, you know, we're also looking at other no, kind of novel uses of um, of machine learning in, in healthcare. The, one of my favorite companies, a company called Theater, mm. they do uh, machine vision analysis of uh, endoscopic surgeries. So they take the videos, and right now it's only in retrospect, but it's going to basically be also running very soon uh, live on operational surgeries. And what they do is that they basically analyze the video automatically and they do an automatic summary. They find out problems, they find out errors, they report back. And the same thing is going to very soon run in real time on surgery. So kind of giving the surgeon guidance as well as warnings on things that are happening. And one day this is going to be the kind of the operating system for automatic surgeries. Yeah. Um, and so that's one that, you know, it's, that's a long cycle. And But it's uh, a few of the best machine vision people in the, that came out of the Israeli army yeah. who are obsessed with this topic and uh, we just love them. So, you know, another area that we do in health. Yeah. In a conversation we had a long time ago, I remember you you, you tried to stay away from re- heavy regulated industries. Yeah, um, that, that is true. But I think we, we don't have any choice that much. Yeah. I, I think that... Uh, we have this thesis about how the world evolved, not not our, and yeah. not just ours, but it's like these, these platform revolutions and every new platform that comes opens new opportunities. And what happens is that when the new platform comes, the first thing that gets filled are all the big, clear ideas. Yeah. And then comes the secondary ideas, and then come the third idea and so on. So, you know, when mobile came, uh, you know, a big idea would be to do Uber, but now kind of, you know, uh, 10 years into it, you know, you'd get a deck for somebody that wants to do rides for babies from yeah. kindergarten home with insecured cars only in the afternoon, uh, not on Tuesdays yeah. and, you know, and only with drivers that are, that, you know, and like, you know, it's, and it's a tiny, tiny niche of a niche of a niche because that's what's left on that platform. And so what happens is that uh, as an investor, you need to do one of two things. You either need to follow uh, the path of adoption and the path of adoption usually goes uh, from consumer to SMB, to enterprise, to fintech, to healthcare, to government, right? That's more or less the flow, and you know, there's a bunch of others. And so uh, right now, everybody that still wants to do things on mobile and do things on internet have got, yeah, there's still, will, there will be some interesting still ideas on mobile, some of them with regular changes, some of them with, uh, with behavioral changes. Millennials are different than Gen Z wants some different things. There's going to be a new social network, whatever. But, you know, there's going to be some of those, but these are going to be less small, you know, smaller and far, far apart. And so you suddenly you see everybody talk about GovTech. Yeah. Well, nobody wanted that a few years ago. Everybody was busy making money and, you know, investing in the best companies in consumer and SMB. Now all of that is done and, the, you know, the big prices are not there anymore. So people are going now into, uh, you know, fintech happened later. Right. And then, you know, healthcare, uh, you see everybody now doing kind of healthcare IT or things around that. And then it's going to be also in government. Yeah. And so that's one way. And the second way is to say, I'm going to look and find the next uh, platform and I'm going to invest in it dramatically. And in this, I think that, you know, AR, VR, 3D printing for manufacturing, all of those didn't really happen or didn't, and blockchain didn't really happen the way we thought it was going to happen. Yeah. And in these new platforms... Maybe the only two that are happening in a way, one of them, which is not that huge, is voice as an interaction platform. And the one that is happening is synthetic biology. And so why that, that's why you see a lot of, you know, like Andreessen and others raising, you know, biology funds is because uh, synthetic biology is a cross-section of two things. One thing is that they move from consumer into healthcare because that's where 
there's room for innovation still. And the second thing is that that's the only new platform that is creating multi-billion dollar company that's actually materialized so far of the new platforms. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, you know, drones, everything else. Yeah, there's lots of companies, but not yet this, the size of companies. Yeah. And so that's why it's so interesting for everybody. Totally. Well, going back to gaming for a second, it's an interesting analogy to movies because uh, on the movie side or, or even TV side, I don't, we haven't seen a ton of data-driven companies. I guess Netflix is, is the monopoly. or the only, like Outside of that, what's happened in games hasn't, hasn't happened in TV and film? Long tail kind of way? or So first of all, there, there are a bunch of companies that are looking at uh, using uh, predictive uh, machine learning to predict uh, what scripts are yeah. going to work and what actors you need to put on. And, and there one Israeli company that's doing fairly well in this field oh, cool. that's working with some of the major studios. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, it's not one of my companies. I can't share that much. But this, many of these studios are already using machine learning to understand what's going to happen. And that's cool. That makes perfect sense. Uh, I think that the the one thing that is different is that in games, the customer is willing to accept infinite changes in the game itself on a very personal level in real time because that's the game. The game is interactive. Yeah. Uh, whenever you try to do a movie that's interactive, you know, the latest one was the, the Black Mirror yeah. episode that was interactive. Very difficult, very expensive. And at the end of the day, does not yet deliver the kind of value uh, proposition yeah. that people want. There's a little bit around that in what uh, Yoni is doing in Echo, mm. uh, Yoni Bloch, or, you know, the, the great technology there and a, and a lot of really interesting content that's coming out. But even that, and, and that is working on, you know, on browser or on, only on apps that have the SDK. And it's starting to get there. But I think that the reality is that we're not there yet, even creatively, to think, how does a, a movie that changes for the consumer, for the specific consumer, going to look like? You know, how do you do that? And and I think that we're going to see more of that probably in uh, three or four years when when deep fake technology gets to the point that you can basically dictate uh, ten endings, and you don't need to shoot the ten endings yeah. because you've got the image of the you've got the image of the two uh, stars. And you can decide that whether they're going to kiss or kill each other or uh, or do whatever you, they want without having to now shoot 100 different endings yeah. because you can do that automatically. And the, the day that happens, this entire industry will change completely because then it will have the same capabilities of games and then the same principles will apply. Totally. Uh, yeah, a lot that we learned from the gaming industry will will happen in other industries. Or I, I send uh, up till today, every once in a while when I have... Uh, Usually consumer SMB CEOs and companies that are think are not moving fast enough or are not understanding the extreme in which you can iterate and optimize, I send them for a day or two to a games company and they come back completely shocked yeah. and, and then they kind of start implementing this in their, in their company. Totally. I want to transition to some uh, startup topics, but before then, to close on the investing, is there anywhere else that you're doing deep dive or, or really excited about or, or put differently of the two ways you put it in terms of, you know, are you going deeper in fintech or govtech or are you waiting, you know, looking at the next platform? Where else are you excited in terms of what we haven't discussed yet? I think that my uh, my realization of the last few years is that, um, as I said, some of the big opportunities are gone already. But uh, I think that I'm now I'm, I know that I'm now a, a lot more focused on what I call vertically integrated businesses, which is again not a new concept, but I explained it in a second. And so, once software was disrupting uh, non-software businesses, and then new software was disrupting old software businesses. 
And then, now we're getting to the point that disrupting these businesses with even more software is, is getting tough. And so the next question is, maybe you don't need to have these businesses replace their software or something. Maybe you can just build a competing business, which is not 90% software, but it's maybe it's only 40% software. And the rest of it is just pure startup grit and execution, where the incumbent is slow, it has the wrong kind of people, it has no understanding of how to talk to, to the new generation of consumers. Even if you're just 30% software, maybe that works. And so we see companies like Lemonade, right? At the end of the day, Lemonade, which I love, and you know the founders are friends and they're all great. The product itself at the end of the day, it's much better, yeah. but the core of it is the same, right? They, they did not invent... Uh, a new way of doing insurance. It's the same insurance, but it's better service. It's, you know, it's digital. It's much faster because they're using machine learning to underwrite and to deal with claims. It has a much better brand. It has a much better experience. It's, you know, it's, it's completely digital first. Uh, it took away a lot of the, um, a lot of the brokers on the way, so it can be cheaper. And all of these things are basically not because it's a tech startup. It's because it's a better run company. Uh, that is tech enabled. And so it's not that the other insurance companies are not tech enabled. Yes, they are, but they're tech enabled in a way that tech basically slows them down. And Lemonade is a company that is tech enabled in the way that tech accelerates them. And so these are, I call them tech enabled vertically integrated businesses. And in a way, once you start thinking about that, then I think that if you apply the same thinking, you'll see that there's not a business in the world that you can't disrupt. Right. So you can think about a toy store, right? Is this the way you would build a toy store? If I told you now you've got to build a toy store, that Eric, that, that's your mission in life. You've got to build a toy store, but it's got to be amazing. Yeah. How would that look? It would look different, right? It wouldn't look like with the same ideas of how to build aisles from 50 years ago. It would be different. It would be interactive. A lot of the things would not be sitting on the, on the shelf. It would be more digital. You'd be experiencing them digitally. You'd be, a lot of different things, right? So I think that right now, if I take a good startup team, and being that everything is now technology, literally everything, there's not a single business that I couldn't do better right. with a startup team, with a strong startup team and software capabilities, you know. And the question is, uh, on one set, do we think about building these businesses in a different way? For example, you know, what we you know, saw with WeWork, et cetera, is, hey, does blitz scaling not work? Do we have to think about, you know, gross margins di- differently than we, than we did software businesses? Or in what we're seeing with sort of, you know, Casper and this D2C crunch, do you need sort of a differentiated product in addition to sort of differentiated brand or, or you know, tech startup run a, a way of running a company? How do you think about it? So I think that you really, at the end of the day, when you choose what vertical business you want to go after, you need to see that it's, uh, that it's a repetitive business. You need to see that you've got many touch points with the customer. And you need to see that a lot of the changes that you're making are in the digital experience because that's where you're strong. And so you know, not undermining any D2C brand, but if you're something that's being bought every few years and your core differentiator is just in the ordering while the product itself is more or less the same product, then that's going to be very difficult to build a long-lasting, you know, multi-billion dollar business because that is basically not very different than anybody else doing e-commerce, right? If, on the other hand, your product is something that is touches the consumer on, on a, you know, much higher frequency, and where parts of the benefit, is, especially in digital products, uh, like financial services products or insurance products, a lot of the product experience is digital, then you can build a crazy company very fast. And yeah. so, you know, both are good. Both are okay. It's just a question of expectations, yeah. right? If you expect your physical goods, low frequency uh, product, uh, which is fairly commoditized, 
um, to succeed. Don't expect it to be a $20 billion company. I want to close by spending a few minutes on uh, some st- startup topics. I'm curious for your most non-obvious uh, opinions or or how you really think about a, a few different topics. One is uh, is product market fit. What what do founders not fully appreciate or, n- or not get about uh, about approaching product market fit? Wow. <laughs> do you have another two, few hours? <laughs> Thank God right now, the concept of product market fit is already something I don't need to explain to people, right? So people come and they know what they're talking about. I think that, yeah, so that's a good thing. I think that what's still missing are a bunch of things. The first thing is that people don't always qualify the quality of the market that they're checking. So they're like, wow, look at this. I have crazy conversion uh, in this area. And I'm like, yeah, great. But this, you know, this entire area is going to create a company worth $100 million. So, you know, that's one thing. And the second thing is that Especially in internet companies, uh, there's a phenomenon that I've noticed, which uh, many times people are not aware of, which is for every crazy product you're going to put out, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to love it. And so, uh, you know, you, you put out a shitty game that's not really good, but there's going to be somebody that's going to spend a thousand bucks. Now, if you're going to look at that one person spending a thousand bucks, you're like, hey, my game <laughs> kills it. All I need to find is another million people that want to spend a thousand bucks. But it could very well be there's only one of those or 10 of those in the world. And so, you know, in a way, thinking about it, you know, even in enterprise, you want to have, uh, say, 20 customers that are paying $100,000 versus one customer paying $2 million, yeah. right? Because the product market fit may seem the same, but without the repetitiveness of the model, it's not really product market fit. And so I do see a lot of uh, people coming and thinking that they have it, while it's really just the beginning of it and not the reality of it. Yeah, totally. To, to spend a couple of minutes talking about the psychology of a founder during fundraising. What, what's the most important thing uh, or, or biggest mistake you see people make often or the most non-obvious thing that's important to think about there? Well, I think, first of all, that uh, I don't know a founder that does make mistakes in, in fundraising. And I think that uh, one of the reasons is that until you sit on the other side, it's very difficult to understand the psychology of it. And I think that, you know, we teach our founders, we, we give them a kind of pretty extensive fundraising education, which is everything, you know, we raised between us, uh, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions, I need to count. And we've done every possible mistake. And so we're trying to let the founders, if not, not make the mistakes, at least be able to identify quickly when they make them. And still they make lots of mistakes because it's a tough thing. And I think that uh, the one thing that, or maybe the two things that, that I keep telling people that it don't, or does, that resonate, but not always register is that the first thing is that time is your enemy and it's the investor's friend. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, all you're trying to do as an investor is you're trying to lower your risk. You want the deal of more information. Yeah. That, that's what you want. You want to have more information and you want to pay for the deal as if there's less information, mm-hmm. right? Because paying for there's less information, meaning that you're paying a, a lower valuation. But you want to be more secure, so you want to have more information. So what time does on the same valuation is basically give you just ads. And so if I tell you, wow, that's great, let's meet next week. What I just told you is, hey, you know, come back next week with your numbers. I want to see that they evolved. Yeah. And if I tell you, wow, that's great, I want you to meet another one of my partners, That's gonna, but he's away, that's going to be in two weeks. What I just told you is, and maybe if, without even intending it directly, but what I just told you is, uh, let's wait for another two weeks. You give me numbers, yeah. and I'll see if they're good or bad. And so time is your enemy. It's your enemy because if it goes well, then that's fine. You're at the same point you were before. But if it goes badly or if it goes different than what you expected uh, to the negative, then it's very likely that you're not going to get the investment. And so that, that's one thing. 
that people really don't understand. And the second thing is that most of the founders don't uh, don't tend to try and understand the psychology of the of the VC and understand what's really driving the VC. And if you don't understand what's the model of the VC, if you don't understand what's their equity requirements, if you don't understand why they need 20% or why they need 10% or why they want to invest that much money, or if you don't know how large is their fund and what's the other companies they invested in and how, then you're basically not treating it seriously. And just like uh, I think my best advice for people looking for a job is that looking for a job is a job, yeah. right? To look for the right job, it's really a job then fundraising is a double job. You know, you really need to do it properly. You really need to learn. You really need to create uh, the right tools. You need to create the right presentations. And and people are just treating it sometimes the wrong way. And, you know, I tell people, if any meeting you came out uh, out of in fundraising where you didn't have to change at least one slide in your deck is a bad meeting, right? Because your deck's never perfect. There's always a comedy say, wow, or you didn't, if you didn't add some more information, it means that you didn't listen. And so... Most founders, uh, I think the biggest thing is that they don't understand that they've got to move fast on this and they don't understand that doing it properly is a real job yeah. that mostly evolves around understanding the psychology and the emotional side of the investor. Totally. And when you do that, when you start understanding that, it, it becomes easier. It's not never easy, but it becomes easier. Right. And you guys have done a great job creating uh, not just knowledge, but tools for the ecosystem. So definitely check out Signal and, and The Brief uh, on, uh, on your guys' website. And another topic I want to shift to is, is just startup leadership. Uh, you, you've obviously, you, you've scaled companies, your, your partners have scaled companies, you work with companies early stage and, and help them scale. As you just think about general start, and you, you know, before startups, you spend a lot of time in the Air Force, learn a lot of leadership lessons there. What, what are some of the biggest lessons you find imparting to your founders or, or, or sort of interesting mistakes that you see them making that maybe people don't fully appreciate? Wow. <laughs> Again, another few hours. Totally. I think that, you know, if you look at the Air Force, the one big thing that that comes to mind immediately is that the, the Israeli Air Force especially is one of the most learning organizations out there, which means that you're putting a learning feedback loop inside everything you do. So uh, from the first flight you take in the Air Force, you brief for the flight and you do it very properly. And then you, you decide what you're going to work on on the flight. You get on the flight in the flight, you just execute based on the pointers you gave yourself. And then you come down and you debrief. And the debrief can be longer than the actual flight. And in the debrief, you're basically repeating everything that happened and trying to understand why things happen. You end up with conclusions of what needs to get better. These conclusions become the briefing of the next flight. And all of that is built on top of two core assumptions. One of it is that there's never such a thing as a perfect flight, right? And if you came back, the most embarrassing thing in, in the squadron is to come... Uh, to the debrief, the general debrief, and say, oh, we had a great flight. We have nothing to report. Because what you just said is that I just wasted uh, the taxpayer's money because I didn't learn anything, hmm. right? And if you didn't learn anything, you know, don't bother flying. And the second thing is that transparency and truthfulness is the core of it because without it, there's no way to improve. And so this learning loop, together with these two basic things, is something that I that I absorbed in my years in the Air Force and that I'm, I'm really trying to uh, implement within my companies and people ask me why is that why is it that important and the reality is that uh, when you look at companies you know it's all about in startups all about fast iterations and, and getting better and better from one iteration to another and what happens is that if you are a um, if you're a non-learning founder let's say that the average pace of learning is three uh, percent between one iteration to another and let's say that the learning founder the only difference is two percent there's only five percent learning between you know, that's not that much, right, from 3% to 5%. But if you now multiply that by 25 iterations, 
then that means that your result is going to be more than double because it's compounded. And so I'm trying to explain and teach people that they've got to create uh, learning organizations. They've got to create these organizations where everybody in the organization and the organization as a whole has uh, learning groups inside it. Uh, I call it the learning startup. Uh, just writing about that. So that's one thing on the, on, the, on the methodology side. And then on the leadership side, I think that the biggest thing that I found over the years is that people both um, mix in, in the wrong way, but also don't understand that as a startup founder, you really have two different tasks that are not the same one. One is to be a good manager, but the other one is to be a good leader. And being a good manager is something that I wrote about. And, you know, there's a whole set of tools that you can use and so on. But being a great leader is, is very different. Being a great leader is around, uh, you know, the, the way I look at it and, you know, being a great uh, manager is, is this flow of uh, setting the strategy, which is like the vector in which you're running, then making sure you recruit or have the best team, then setting goals, which are what's going to help you measure that you're in the right direction. And then as the founder CEO, you participate in running and you also help the team whenever they run into obstacles and then you continue monitoring it and then you go back to strategy is my strategy still good is my team still good are the goals right and you continue doing that and that's basically my you know my years of managing thousands of people and you know in, in 30 seconds and i think that most people end up being okay in that the leadership bit is much tougher it's much uh, it's much tougher because uh, first of all it's much softer skills yeah it's less measurable but it's also much tougher because unlike management, which is basically something you can apply on others, your leadership only applies on your example that you set. And so while in management, you can manage others in one way, but manage yourself differently because people don't see that. Yeah. In leadership, if you don't lead everything by example, it's just not going to work. Right. And then, you know, in the leadership bits, it's focusing on people, it's focusing on vision, and it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and it's focusing on, on culture. And these are things that most startups think they don't have enough time to do. Right. And so what separates the, uh, let's make some of it concrete. What, what separates, what's one thing that separates the great leaders from the good ones or for, you know, okay ones or good ones who want to up level themselves and become great. Yeah. I, I think that on the, if I, you know, if I said there's like three areas and that I, you know, if I try to minimize it, it's people, vision and, uh, and culture. I think that on the, on the people side, the one thing, if I need to kind of sum up everything and, you know, I think that for me, the biggest difference is caring. Yeah. And so the great leaders, the ones that are really great, have deep caring inside them. Yeah. Uh, and while this is not what people tend to associate great, great tech leaders with, yeah. the reality is that the really good ones have that. And you need this because if you don't have a caring organization, caring is not just about caring about the people. When you have a caring environment, people care about their job. They care about their duties. They care about their coworkers. They care about their family. They, they don't burn out as much. And this energy of caring, which sounds very fluff and very not related to the hard conversation we've had so far, is actually a core of the culture of most yeah. of the successful companies I, I know. This is, this is one thing. And, uh, and then also this caring also many times uh, neutralizes uh, toxic behavior that exists in companies. And, you know, it can kill some companies, but it's a caring environment um, that usually uh, manages to, to do that. The second thing on the, uh, the great leaders uh, understand that everybody understands that you need your why and everybody understands that you need your why for your customers, for your investors, uh, and also for your employees. But it's only the great leaders that really, really ensure that that everybody in the organization knows how their job is really tied into the why of the company. Yeah. 
And this is such a simple thing, but so difficult to do because at the end of the day, working the straight up is tough. Yeah. Right, roller coaster, and you're usually not getting paid as much as you could get paid elsewhere, and you're working more hours, and you know there's the chance of failure all the time, and so all these people that work in these startups, you know, they deserve to know why what they're doing is important for the why, and um, and if you don't let them that do that, they're going to lose touch with the company emotionally, and then they're going to leave, or you know they're going to churn, and uh, or they're just not going to give as much effort, and so the great leaders understand that you need to repeat your why. Crazy, like you know, more times than more time than you intuitively think. You know, I would ask people, when was the last time you spoke about the strategy? And somebody said, well, you know, I had a, a, a an all hands meeting um, a month ago. I said, you know, what's a month? You know, a month is a crazy time. And then I embarrass them. I, I call a bunch of employees and I say, okay, what did you do this morning? Great. Right. And how is that tied into the the strategy of the company, the why of the company? People are like, I don't know. I said, okay, good. Do you want to do your why again? Uh, so that's the second thing. And then on the culture side, there's, you know, there's so many things. But that um, for me, more than anything, is creating a culture of collaboration. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, the cliche is that one plus one is worth more than two. In startups, it does work. Yeah. And um, a culture of collaboration does two things. The first thing is that it, it kills uh, the friction of politics, which slows companies down. As we know, you know, slowness is what kills startups more than yeah. anything else. And the second thing, it allows people to really be one plus one worth three. And so for me over the years in the companies that I ran in, many of my companies, I, uh, uh, if there was one area where I told people that um, I expect them to be really harsh to people's behavior was whenever there was somebody that was inhibiting collaboration. That is something that you just cannot have in the company because when it starts, the reciprocation is also the other person. Uh, not wanting to collaborate, and then it spreads like fire, and it's very difficult to stop when you start. So I think these are kind of three areas where I see people missing quite yeah. a bit. It's a perfect place to to wrap. My guest today has been Gigi Levy-Weiss uh, of NFX. If you have a chance to work with him, if you have a chance to work with uh, NFX as an entrepreneur or, or co-investor, I highly recommend it. We uh, just did a deal with them out of New York and are excited to do uh, excited to do many more. Uh, Gigi, thank you so much for coming to the podcast and being a friend, uh, friend to us. Thanks for having me, man. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.